Now we're moving on to our feature for the evening, Women's Views in Our World Today. And the woman we're celebrating tonight uh, for this segment is Paula Slayer, Foreign Correspondent, Malice Bureau Chief for Russia TV. Paula, good evening to you. And thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us. Thank you very much for having me. Let me just read a little bit about you so people can understand why we've invited you to be our guest for this segment. Paula has worked in broadcasting for over 20 years, a foreign correspondent, anchor woman, news editor, and has received numerous awards for her work, including being finalist in the Russian uh, TEFI Awards, the Emmys of Russia, for her reporting in Libya. Her assignments have taken her across the globe, and she can often be seen reporting as Russia Today's Middle East Bureau Chief, a position she's held since the inception of the channel in 2005, if I'm not mistaken, from the front lines of Syria, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, Ukraine, Egypt, Gaza, Israel, and Lebanon. Now, uh, she's a Vitsi, by the way, and uh, she is a Joe Burger. I'm agreeing to you once again, because I say this because I too am a Vitsi. <laughs> I did my postgraduate bits. So I am honored and so excited to talk to you. And by the way, um, she has started her own news hound. So uh, she is not just a reporter, she is one of the founders of, uh, 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 she is the founder of, of News Hound, which has been with the SABC as well. So she's uh, not only in, in Russia TV, but she was here at the SABC. Paula, um, what exactly drove you away? Why? Why are you there, not here? I don't think it's fair to say that I was driven away. I okay. mean, you know, you were talking about being a Vitsi. It's like once a Vitsi, always a Vitsi. Once a South African, always a South African. I do get homesick. Um, I do come back quite often to see my parents who still live in Johannesburg, in Ravonia, actually. Um, but it was a feeling more of of wanting to get involved in international stories. As you mentioned, I'd worked with SABC and I, I was with them for a couple of years working for SABC3 and reading the news late at night. And I just wanted to be part of an international story for a while. And the irony now is that because I cover international news, I miss domestic news and I miss the, the difference one can make when you actually report for a channel yeah. that's national and people know each other more than they do if you're reporting on a story, for example, in Syria for a Russian audience, sometimes I feel like it has less impact yeah. than it did for the stories when I worked at SABC. Yeah, well, when I was saying I understand what you mean when you say it's an affair, I'm not trying to be that. Uh, but I was asking why would you not do international stories for uh, South African SABC? We do have our SABC International. We do have our uh, channel, 24-hour news channel. Why couldn't you bring your expertise here? Why, why should the Russians have you? <laughs> No, I appreciate the question. Um, firstly, it wasn't it wasn't organised, and it wasn't it certainly wasn't a career path I saw myself taking going to work for Russian television. Fortunately, it's Russian television in English because I don't speak Russian. And it started, as you mentioned, in 2005. It was a, a Russian network that really felt that the English mainstream media presented Russia in a very negative light. And so they wanted to talk to people like you and me, who I'm assuming you don't speak Russian either. No, I did not. Don't speak, <laughs> people who don't speak Russian, but to speak to us in our own language about how Russia views the world. And today this Russian network is 24-7 in English, in Spanish, in Arabic, in German. And, 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 and it's interesting because when it started almost 14, 15 years ago, it was such a new concept. But today you have German television in English, you have French television in English, 
in English. So it certainly is a way that the industry has gone. But more directly to your question, I think if um, I, I think it was just a kind of career path that happened without too much thinking. To be completely honest, I turned 30, and I think for a lot of women, when we turn 30, there's a little bit of a wobble, yeah. and we start reassessing our lives and and what are we doing, and is this where we thought we would be? And I felt I wanted something different. I'm not sure that I'm going to be gone from South Africa forever. I still feel hugely connected to South Africa. Um, unfortunately, I don't get to cover South African stories too often. Sometimes I'll, I'll come back home and the Russian network will say, oh, I'll find some stories for us. We're interested in, in occasional stories. But from their perspective, South Africa is the, the far end of the world. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> and, you know, as important as South Africa is to people like you and me who grew up in South Africa and for many people who live in South Africa, it really is, it really is so far away for people who live in Russia and elsewhere that we very seldom make it into the news stories and the news agenda of Russia Today television. Yeah. What about family? Um, We're not getting any younger and uh, one of the stories that shocked the world that you covered was when you were in the Middle East and bombs were exploding right behind you. One of the famous (laughs) videos on on YouTube. Uh, The work you do puts you in the literally quite literally in line of fire, putting your life in danger. Um, what about family? Are you having any plans of starting a family and living a normal life like any other human being that wants to live? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I wonder what comes first because I, I'm, I'm in a long-term relationship for 10 years, but I'm not married and I don't have kids. And I always get asked that question that you asked. And very often I get asked it by women aspiring journalists because they, they're trying to make a decision. Yeah. What is the price one pays to become, let's say, a foreign correspondent or a person who goes to war zones? But again, I'm not sure what came first because I was so excited by the opportunities that my career was presenting me with. I, I joined the Russian network. And I know this is going to sound strange, but six months later, a war broke out between Israel and Lebanon. Yeah. And next thing, I was on the front line reporting from a war zone. And I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but for me, it was very exciting. And you're still full of adrenaline, and you feel like you really are where the news is happening. I've always said, like, I I imagine that one day if I have grandchildren, I'll be able to look at this period of history and say, well, I actually covered most of those um, big stories. And then then because it's so interesting, the next thing, you've turned 40, and you still haven't had kids. So... I'm not quite sure where the circle starts. Does it start because a person is not uh, is, is not very aware of wanting to have kids and have a family, and so you're much more open to career development and opportunities and traveling? Or because I had the career I had up until now, did it evolve in such a way that I haven't had children? Yeah. So, so, so that's something I'm still questioning. On the other hand, having said that, I... I feel incredibly lucky. I feel very, very privileged to have had the opportunities I have. I very often go to places where people are having the worst experience of their lives, whether yeah. they've lost their home or whether they've lost their family. And they invite me into their into their most intimate moments in, 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 in the worst part of their story, in the worst experience they're going through. And there's something about being a journalist where people just open up their hearts to you. Yeah. And I feel like I'm privy to worlds and emotions and people 
that I could never have imagined I would be. And so if one is weighing the one off against the other, I certainly haven't felt that I've missed out on anything by not having children. Yeah. But then again, you never know. You never know how you're going to feel five or ten years down the line. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, not too long ago, I think it was uh, at the beginning of the week, I was speaking to one of uh, 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 journalists who have less, left journalism, Pakamile Lubi Majola. She uh decided later on in her life that maybe I wouldn't be a family person and she left journalism. She's a spokesperson now and I'm, I'm worried that perhaps as journalists we tend to be focused more on the futuristic ideals of being part of the history in the making um, and I would imagine if you are going to love the idea of saying to your children later on that um, you were there when that story broke, you were there when that war broke out, you must be a history lover but how who are you going to tell that history to <laughs> if you don't have any children <laughs> you know what i mean i think i think what you say is part of also another question that i keep asking myself and that is how our industry is changing because when i started at the sabc 25 odd years ago and i loved my years at the sabc and and really i'm i'm eternally indebted particularly to the cameramen because i came in not having studied journalism i studied politics and philosophy at first and the cameramen were the ones who by and large taught me the ropes and i had jimmy matthews and chris bishop and they were my editors and they, they were fantastic but I don't think when young people ask me today, I don't think the industry, I don't think there's even going to be a job for a, current, a foreign correspondent, which is essentially what I am, yeah. five or ten years from now. The, the cell phone and the evolution of social media means that I even notice that I'm going to fewer war zones than I went to before. Because, for example, if something happens in Syria, it takes me the better part of a day to get there. And by the time I get there, there's already been pictures all over social media of what happened. And, and sometimes I question, well, do they really need me to go there? Yes, I'm an objective voice, and yes, I'm an experienced journalist, but today we have citizen journalists. We have just about anybody who can take pictures and very often report on what they're seeing. They might not be able to give the context. So when you talk about, well, in terms of family, will I be able to tell these stories to my children? I'm not even sure there's going to be a profession vis-a-vis -vis doing that. Yeah. I think journalism as a profession is changing, and who knows, maybe by the time... You know, my children grow up, or potentially if I have children or my grandchildren grow up, there won't even be something as a journalist in the way that we understand it today. Yeah. Let's talk about history because I'm a lover of history and I would imagine many journalists uh, would uh, have an affinity for history. Do you find that we are capturing the stories, especially in the Western journalism that we see being proliferated in the, in the face of uh, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN? And I see now uh, Russia TV is doing, B BBC is doing the very same thing. It seems as though we're news media is taking aside that idea of being as balanced and fair and all that is speedily going out of the window. Do you imagine that as quote-unquote uh, history's first rough draft, we are capturing history accurately when we take sides? It's a very good question. You know, I studied history and, and you correctly mentioned that so many journalists have a love of history because I think it gives us a sense of where we've come from and a context which is so inherent to the whole profession of journalism. And one of the questions we asked at university was, 
the history that we've been taught up until now is very often history through the eyes of men because the men were the ones who were writing it down. There must be huge passages of history that were women's experiences that haven't even been handed down. History is also very often passed down through the, if you're looking, for example, at a battle, through the winners and not through those who were defeated. So the first question to ask is, what kind of history have we received up until now? Has it been, and the the word you haven't used is, has it been an objective kind of history? Added to that is is the suggestion you're putting forward, because certainly Russian television has the Russian perspective. And I can tell you, I spent a year and a half covering the war between Russia and Ukraine. If you watch Russia today, and if if journalism is the first draft of, of history, that draft was very different coming from a Russian perspective than the draft that was coming from Ukrainian TV. Yeah. That was the yeah. Ukrainian perspective. Say more, but two completely different narratives. Um, I think we are doing a disservice to the whole idea of, of passing down an objective story. But having said that, I'm not sure that it ever was done properly. Yeah. I think it's an ideal, this idea that we have a kind of objectivism. I'm not sure that history in the way that we learned it as youngsters was ever 100% objective. And and today we have the whole evolving of fake news. And yeah. that's something that, that very much frightens me is when there's a deliberate attempt to actually make up news. And, and what does that mean in terms of, of the history and what we're going to be passing down? Having said that, though, there's always been fake news. We maybe just didn't term it and maybe just wasn't as prevalent as it is now. Yeah. But I think there are very real challenges, A, to the journalism profession and B, to how stories are being passed down because... Because there's such a proliferation of television channels, outlets, social media, that I think, you know, on the one hand it's good because you're getting so many different views, but on the other hand, I'm not sure how good it is because very often a person doesn't have the time to watch 15 news channels. Yeah, yeah. So you find, you mentioned Fox, Fox News, you can find a Fox, a person who enjoys Fox News and watches it, it reinforces their perspective and they feel even more bolder in holding the views they do. Yeah. They're not necessarily listening to the opposing view. Indeed, indeed. Uh, well, when, when, when we speak generally as people, um, we, we tend to speak because we believe the things we say. Uh, sometimes we're trying to mislead. Um, and I'm using now the phrase that was famous at the time, Russia, if you're listening. And, and, and then later on, he goes on to say, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I never said it. I, there's no conspiracy. There is no collusion. There's no collusion in Russia. <laughs> my curiosity, and this is my final question, I'll let you go. Uh, as, as we go on seeing what politicians, how they've used journalists and journalism and how we have fallen for phrases like fake news and what is, what it is not. Uh, is it possible that perhaps the fourth estate is, is falling back into the old narrative of being used by the clergy, being used by uh, the, the, the rich and powerful, being used by politicians and will remain just the mouth peace and not the activists of expression. Yes, unfortunately, I think it is. I think it ties in with what we've been saying. I think there is a real threat. But I'm not sure that the the, the fact that media is being used by politicians or whether it's advertisers or whoever, yep. I'm not sure that that's anything really new. I think it's just beca- coming more to the fore. On the one hand, when I was growing up and let's say not even growing up, let's say when I was working at the SABC, the dream was to work for CNN. Because the only channels available in those days, let's say, were CNN and the BBC and and Sky. Today, 
there's maybe 80 different channels that you could work for if you're an English-speaking journalist. So on the one hand, it really is good because people have this complete diversity of views. So you would imagine that somewhere between all of them, the truth is coming out. But on the other hand, it is the very risk that you that, that you present, and that is the risk that each one is pushing their own viewpoint. Yeah. The risk is that if you only watch one, you're only going to receive that viewpoint. If you only watch Russia today, you will only hear what the Russian perspective is. It doesn't mean that it's not accurate. It just means that it's only one part of the story. To balance it, you need to hear the opposing views. So, so I, I feel kind of torn. On the one hand, I want to say to you, I think it's wonderful that we've got so many out, out networks out there. We've got social media. We've got so many people involved in communications today. No longer do you have the, t- the traditional notion of a journalist who's on a, on, a, on, a, on a stool kind of telling you the news. Now you, the people are involved in the news. But on the other hand, there's so much more room for spin. And unless people have to become more sophisticated in terms of how they absorb news and read news. And I actually think two things. I think the role of the journalist will change, and I think the journalist will become more verification of facts. We'll be verifying whether the news is accurate rather than doing first-hand reporting, like the example I gave you about going to Syria. I'm not sure how many foreign correspondents will be going to do stories. They might just be verifying the facts that they're receiving. And the second thing that I wanted to say was I think we need to whether it's at school or whether it's at university or wherever it is, we need to become, as consumers of news, as people who are watching news, reading newspapers or whatever, we have to be trained in terms of being more media savvy. And there are a lot of programs out there that are starting to gain traction in terms of how do you become, as an ordinary layperson, somebody who doesn't get taken in by fake news, somebody who's able to recognize when you're being lied to. Because... There's such a plethora of channels. The opportunities for that to happen to any ordinary person are that much greater. Yeah. Can I ask you an unfair question of what's happening here in of South Africa? You can. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I'm saying this because it's unfair. You probably may, you may not know what's happening here, but, you, but again, you, you may. Uh, South Africa is going through a situation where uh, last night um, there were some people who looted um, uh, some, some, some foreign owned shops. And much of the rhetoric that you're hearing coming from many people, not from politicians, from individuals who are calling in, they are saying these people are taking our jobs, our opportunities. And this is the question I'm asking you. When you go through all the various bureaus that you've worked in and for, uh, have you found that people have been um, against you purely because you're South African, you're a foreigner, and you're there taking their jobs? I haven't found it, um, probably because my title is a foreign correspondent. So yeah. the idea is that I'm, I'm, I'm in a niche market where I'll be yeah. working for a channel. I'm not competing with local journalists. I'm not going to Egypt and saying, well, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a journalist and I, the job I'm doing, I've taken away from another Egyptian journalist. So no. I haven't experienced it on that level. Um, I do want to mention that I am aware of the story and we recommended it and I wanted to cover it for Russian television and they were not that interested in it. I can't really comment on how much coverage it's getting on other international networks, but that can just be an example of how, again, channels make a decision of what story they think is important to cover for their audiences. And you you probably can answer better than me how much international coverage the story is getting. Having said that, though, I've covered stories of of xenophobia and stories where people criticize foreigners for taking their jobs extensively. It's not something that's unique to South Africa. I covered the same story in Libya, in Egypt. 
Uh, not so much in Syria because Syria was more focused on the, uh, the collapse of the state and the, the civil war. Yeah. But unfortunately, xenophobia is something that happens all over the world and it happens when the economy is struggling. Yeah. It happens when people don't have don't have jobs and, and, and really feel that, that they're being threatened. Yeah. So it's not a uniquely South African story, but it's obviously a very a very upsetting story. Indeed. And actually, Indeed. it was a story I covered in South Africa when I worked at the SABC. So it's something that's been around in South Africa for the better part of two decades, just coming out perhaps now more strongly than it did before. Yeah. All right, Paula Slayer, thank you very much for coming and talking to us. We really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Paula Slayer is a foreign correspondent from the Middle East Bureau of Chief, uh, a Miller's Bureau Chief for Russia TV.